Hi, and welcome to Inglewood Presbyterian Church in Kirkland, Washington. We are a church for the neighborhood, whether you're a local neighbor or from far away, all are welcome here. We are pleased to present to you our weekly Sunday sermons. Our head pastor is James Cuman, and you can find more information about us on our website at inglewoodpc.org. Deborah is now going to read for us a selection of texts from Exodus 1, starting with verse 7. Chapter 1, verses 7 to 22. And the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew strong so that the land of Egypt was filled with them. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. Then the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives. Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this? He demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River. But you may let the girls live. Thank you, Deborah. Long before our story this morning, there is exactly one other story in the Bible with both bricks and mortar. 
where the leaders of a particular construction effort say, come, let us. And then they have a plan of action to literally raise their sense of self-esteem up to the point where, hey, we're just as good as God. And now God's people live under this. Well, not exactly this. This is made from a couple of Halloween decorations. A few summers ago, our kids got to learn about Joseph, how God's people ended up in Egypt in the first place. And one of the acting roles was a guard who, you know, I thought needed to be armed with an actual ancient Egyptian sword. Anyway, God's people at this point, their fortunes have utterly changed. Instead of one of their own, this guy named Joseph, being in charge of Egypt, second in command only to the king, and the entire nation of Egypt being grateful for both his, well, understanding of dreams, a gift given to him by God, and his organizational abilities in service of the nation. Now there comes this king who doesn't know about Joseph, or you could fairly translate it, doesn't care about Joseph. What he sees in a story all too regularly played out in history, what he sees is this large and growing ethnic group that's not quite like in whatever various named ways the dominant majority ethnic cultural group. And the fact that this other ethnic group is growing is a threat to their sense of identity. And they wonder about foreign enemies and allies. This isn't the first time. Certainly it's not the last. As we enter our story this morning, what stands out immediately is just how far these people have been pushed down from honored guests of the nation of Egypt to somewhat on the margins perhaps, and then into just abject slavery. Again, this may have been the first story in the Bible of institutionalized racism and slavery. It certainly will not be the last. Even today, there are kids who are enslaved making bricks. And in this situation of just abject terror, the question that they must have been asking themselves the same question we ask ourselves in the middle of a pandemic and every other problem of our lives. Where is God in this? Where, where is he? And we know that the author of Exodus is expecting people to be asking that question and implying that the people themselves in this position of enslavement are asking themselves. He signals this in the way that Hebrew narrative so often does economically, subtly, by simply not mentioning God almost at all. God isn't mentioned as the people of God multiply. God isn't mentioned as the king rises up and decides to enslave them. God isn't mentioned as their lives get harder. God is mentioned when these brave and faithful and civilly disobedient 
midwives rise up and simply refuse to do as the king commands. They feared God, we read. They honored God, and God rewards them with families. Otherwise, God seems completely absent. But again, the Hebrew narrator makes sure that we see that that is not the case. God's presence is not signaled in his being named frequently. His presence is signaled by how the story goes. Had an Egyptian royal scribe written this story, it would have been different in all kinds of ways. But one thing we know for sure, Pharaoh, the king, would have been at the very center, and not as some nameless despot to simply terrorize the Hebrews. No, no, no. He would have been this wise and far-seeing ruler who took measures far ahead of anyone else to protect the future of the kingdom. Next in glory would, of course, have been the taskmasters and perhaps other nobles who were the ones who carried out the will of the pharaoh in these wise policies that he instituted. And, of course, the Egyptian people themselves, so blessed to have a ruler who would take these unpopular measures to protect the future of the people. Had an Egyptian written this story, the Hebrews would have been there, of course, but hardly human and not necessarily even worth mentioning. Slaves universally in the ancient world were seen as less than, not a situation where a human being created in the image of God is sometimes enslaved for a season, but those who were enslaved were simply seen as not even the same category of being as freeborn. But even among the slaves, there would have been categories. Even among the slaves, there would have been grades. Certainly Hebrew women would have been seen as less than Hebrew men. And the other characters we meet in this story, the Hebrew midwives, would have been even less than the other Hebrew women. You see, in many cultures in the ancient world, and the evidence suggests it's true here, midwives were often women who had not had children of their own. And almost universally in ancient cultures, women who had not had children of their own were seen as less than. Questions were asked whether God even liked them. But there's one category even lower than the Hebrew midwives, the Hebrew babies. Now again, we know how an Egyptian would see this. We know how an Egyptian would make sense of society in this way. But where do we see God coming into the story? Where do we see God allying himself? Certainly not with the king or the taskmasters, or even with the Egyptian people themselves. We absolutely see God allying himself and keeping his covenant promise with the Hebrews. They are identified in the verses that started this chapter, ones that you can go back and read on your own. They are identified as the people of the promise. God has his eye on them, even in their difficulties. And then, of course, the Hebrew midwives were told that they feared God. They lied to the Pharaoh about their work. They lied to protect the babies, and God favored them with families, which 
is to say God raised them from their lowly status in the eyes of others and gave them what would raise their status for everyone else around them. And the babies. God allies himself with the babies. Through the faithful honoring of God by these brave midwives, God works to protect the most vulnerable characters in the entire story, these infants. So friends, if we, we ask ourselves, where is God? Well, look at the story. God is not on the part of the Pharaoh who is using bricks and mortar, not just to build himself a city and make himself a name. He already considers himself God. He's using bricks and mortar and the living bodies of people created in the image of God to further his own power in his own eyes. No, 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 God's not there. God is not with national glory. God is with those on the outside. And if we want to find God, the first place to look is among those who are low. And friends, if you who are watching this, if you are in this moment laid low, on that score, you can be well positioned to hear this good news. God is close to you and in your pain, God is urging you to simply open your heart to him and let him renew and restore you from the inside out. For those of us in privilege and position though, if we want to go look for where God is, we too need to move with God to ally ourselves with the low. And there's a particular character in this story that illustrates this so well in Exodus chapter 2. And I would invite you to go ahead and go and read that after this video. But in Exodus chapter 2, we see a Hebrew mother who engages in a very creative act of civil disobedience in indeed putting her son into the Nile River, but in a protected boat, a small basket sealed watertight under the protective and watchful eye of a wise older sister, near the place where she has to know that the Egyptian royal women are commonly seen bathing. And then watch in Exodus chapter two as this royal princess, one no doubt of dozens, but this royal princess comes and she doesn't hold on to her position. She uses her position to move and to ally herself with this helpless Hebrew boy and to offer generously to him at perhaps some danger to herself, the protection and prestige and resources she can give. And see if we if we stopped here though, if we, if we stopped this at just principles for living well and seeing God, it, I hope it brings hope to you, it does to me, but it's not enough for us. You see, on our own, we can't, we can't live this way. On our own, if life is up to us and we have to take care of ourselves, 
we are going to be all too tempted to follow in the footsteps of Pharaoh rather than Pharaoh's daughter. We don't need principles for living as much as we need the person to whom every page of scripture points. So we don't need someone who will come and just adopt one of us, saving one of us. We need someone who can come and adopt anyone who wants into the family. We don't just need a, a figure like Moses who will lead his people out of Egypt and oppression into wilderness and a sort of temporary, it's always temporary, it's always provisional promised land. We need someone who will take us home. You see, centuries later, after this story, there would be another boy who was born in questionable circumstances, whose life was almost immediately in danger after birth, and in fact, many other young boys met their end. Who actually spent time in Egypt and then later in his adult life spent time in the wilderness in preparation for God's work through him. We need the one who came ultimately in solidarity with us, letting go as we begin our worship with, letting go of his equality with God, not holding on to that, but coming to become like us in every way human, taking the form of a slave and dying a slave's death on the cross. God himself has demonstrated beyond doubt that he is in utter solidarity with all who are low and brought low for their redemption, for their healing. The fancy Christian word is for their salvation. And friends, if you are in a moment where you are low, whether it's because you've just been laid out economically, laid out in your health, laid out because of relationships self-destructing, or whether you're in a place where you're convicted that you haven't been in solidarity with the low, friends, the invitation is always right here to simply say, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. Take me, make me more like you, the one who can come and accompany and be with for healing, for protection. See, those two Hebrew midwives, they actually have names. 3,500 years later, we know who they are. There are endless squabbles among historians about who that Pharaoh is. The promise of God is that any who simply accept his gift of grace receive names and a family and a future. And we celebrate this as Christians in a distinct way with a actually a modified Passover meal. Later, as we work through a series in Exodus, we'll, we'll talk more about this, but this modified Passover meal comes to us from the Lord Jesus himself. That at the meal that celebrated the people of God's freedom from Egypt, he took at that meal the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, his friends, the ones that he lived in solidarity with. And he said, take, 
eat, all of you. This is my body. It's now broken for you. Eat, remembering me. And in the same way, after supper, he took one of the cups that was part of that Passover meal and gave thanks, and he gave the cup to his friend, saying, Take, drink, all of you. This is the cup of the renewed covenant, now sealed in my blood, blood that is for the forgiveness of sins for many. Drink, all of you. And the promise that was given implicitly right then and is artfully and explicitly summarized by the Apostle Paul is that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of our Lord in solidarity with us in our place until he comes again to renew all things. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. And now I invite you to take these elements in your home, the grape juice or wine that you have in front of you and the bread that you've gathered and take these. This is as close to together as we can do in this time. If you have questions about that, we have a link on the show notes to a place where we laid out our decision to go ahead and, and do this meal as close to together as we can and not wait until we can be physically together again. But take these remembering him to be Jesus' own people. Amen.